Authors on the Air. Welcome to Authors on the Air. I'm Terry Shepard. At some time in our lives, each of us may have imagined being related to someone famous. To claim a president of the United States as an ancestor is a tale worth telling. Our nation's complicated relationship with slavery and the parental unions that came with it has brought the ancestral products of those pairings slowly into our national history. As was the tradition in the communities from whence our rich African-American cultures took shape, family histories were passed on by word of mouth. Oracles revered as the griots and griots carefully memorized every chapter of these powerful human histories. These selected few were charged with passing the legacy on to ensuing generations. In 1990, Dr. Betty Kearse became a griot when her mother produced a box of family memorabilia and shared the story of how a geneticist, biologist, and ultimately an esteemed medical doctor was the descendant of a union between an enslaved cook called Corrine and her owner and half-brother, President James Madison. The other Madisons, The Lost History of a President's Black Family, is the result of three decades of research and writing. Betty calls it both a personal family history and an homage to millions of silenced, invisible African Americans. This memoir is an intimate work of narrative nonfiction that discovers, discloses, and embraces a more inclusive and complete American story. Booklist hails the other Madisons as a compelling saga that gives a voice to those that history tried to erase. Author Alondra Nelson calls it a fascinating root-seeking odyssey which illuminates the work of racial repair confronting us all. Before we meet our guest, I want to share the opening moments of Eduardo Montes Bradley's 2021 documentary film about the other Madisons, where Mandy, the protagonist, remembers the plantation at daylight. The first horn lifts its arm over the dew-lit grass, and in the slave quarters there is a rustling. Children are bundled into aprons, cornbread and water gourds grabbed, a salt pork breakfast taken. I watch them driven into the vague before dawn while their mistress sleeps like an ivory toothpick and Massa dreams of asses, rum, and slave funk. I cannot fall asleep again. At the second horn, the whip curls across the backs of the laggards, sometimes my sister's voice, unmistaken, among them. Oh, pray, she cries. Oh, pray. Those days I lie on my cot, shivering in the early heat, and as the fields unfold to whiteness and they spill like bees among the fat flowers, I weep. It is not yet daylight. Dr. Betty Kearse, welcome to Authors on the Air. Thank you so much, Terry. I am very, very, very pleased to be here. How old were you when you began to develop an awareness of your family history? Well, uh, awareness is a bit of a tricky word, but I first heard about my family history when I was only five years old. 
So I kept calling awareness. It was part of my kind of unconscious training uh, to be a, a, a descendant of a president, to just begin to understand uh, you know, what that might mean. And describe that moment when your mom opened the box of family memorabilia and you became the storyteller. Well, by then I was older. That was in 1990. And my mother brought to me all the way from California to Massachusetts, where I was living at the time, the box of family memorabilia, which contains just generations of treasures from photographs to uh, marriage license, death certificates, newspaper clippings, uh, samples of somebody's uh, sewing project, all you know, just all kinds of little treasures. So when she brought that box to me in 1990, that meant it was my turn to take over the family role as the oral historian, that is the griot. And so it was a pretty awesome um, awakening, really, of knowing that now this really powerful and important role was on, on my shoulders. So she opened the box and began to tell me the family stories, you know, maybe pulling out an item and telling a story about it. But I've neglected to say that the first thing she said was the family credo, which is always remember, you're a Madison. You come from African slaves and a president. That is so incredibly powerful. Had she said that to you before in your life? Oh, yes. Over and over um, it really has been the credo, the words of inspiration for my family for some 200 years, although the exact wording evolved according to the time period. But I first heard it when I was five years old, usually when I wasn't quite behaving the way my mother wanted me to behave. You know, and she was trying to redirect me and getting me to understand that we had a legacy that I was responsible for living up to. As you grew, you developed a fascination with the sciences and chose that as your life's work. How did that happen? Well, because my father's a doctor, um, my, my, I've, my paternal grandfather was a doctor, at dentists in the family, my brother's a dentist. I really wanted to be a writer. And when I was in the eighth grade, I told my English teacher that. And of course, she was thrilled. And you know, she and she did help and encourage me to write. And my family never discouraged me, but that just simply wasn't what they knew. And so I'm, you know, I was a daddy's girl, so I kind of. <laughs> followed in my father's footsteps. And I loved it. I, I, I truly did. But it just wasn't my life's purpose. Was he a pediatrician too? 
No, he was an old-fashioned GP. They don't even use that term anymore. Right, yeah. Yeah, he was a general practitioner. And what was it about pediatrics that appealed to you? I have an undergraduate degree in genetics. It was always very appealing to me. And my plan was to work with children who had genetic disorders. I did do some of that, but mostly... I enjoyed working this working with the kids, you know, watching them develop. So a lot of my practice was just general pediatrics, was kind of a subspecialty in developmental pediatrics and with handicapped children, different kinds of handicaps, not necessarily genetic. I love pediatricians, especially because our granddaughter came to us as a miracle girl with Down syndrome. So we've learned an awful oh. lot about differences from her. She's been a great gift to us. And perhaps the biggest gift was the advice that we got when she was born. And that was that we should have the same expectations, but realize she was going to get there on the scenic route. (laughs) That felt to me, Betty, like we all get to where we need to go on our own route. Well, that's what I I didn't use the uh, phrase scenic route. I would say in her own way or his own way. That's even better. I'm going to adjust the way that I use that. The scenic route sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) That purpose that you were in search of, when did that become clear to you? It actually became clear after I became the griot and while I was writing the book. So part of my research, not just for the book, but also for a personal understanding of myself, was to travel, to go to places where my ancestors had lived, particularly the enslaved ancestors. You know, so I went to Montpelier several times. I went to Ghana, West Africa. I went, I, I went all over the place. Wherever they were, had been, I went. They ended up in Texas. And that's where my mom was born. But what I learned about every single one of my enslaved ancestors was that they were remarkable people. And that they had inner strength and a sense of hope and talents. And I just wanted to use the book as a way of encouraging African-Americans to embrace their slave ancestry, especially, you know, especially our young people, because those qualities that I just mentioned that the slaves had, they passed them down to their descendants, including, you know, the young people today. The sense of industriousness and community feels to me like something that came over from Africa with these people. Is that your sense? Well, they certainly had a strong sense of uh, community, which is an African tradition. You're right. You can have a lot of personal inner strength, but it's hard to make it on your own. And so the enslaved communities were very close and very supportive of each other, shoring each other up through all the hardships. 
One of the scenes in the book that had a powerful impact on me was how the slave community celebrated life when a community member died. Tell us about that tradition. One of the things that I did was I went to the African burial ground in New York City. And I learned that the survivors, the the living uh, enslaved people, continued to revere their elderly and as they died, their their ancestors, they became ancestors. And they would, you know, uh, bathe them, wrap them, and then lay them to rest with an object, preferably the last object that they had touched they would take that with them to the next world. Often slaves were buried uh, at the base of a tree as the African uh, people did. And that's kind of guided them to the underworld. I love the metaphor of being buried next to a tree. As our bodies return to the earth, we can literally become part of a living thing that continues to grow and serves as a monument to the person who slept at its feet. Oh, absolutely. And often slave cemeteries had a ridge around it, in part to keep out evil spirits, but also to keep in the spirits of loved ones so that the ancestors could be part of the lives of their uh, surviving descendants. You write that death was one event that made it possible for slaves from nearby plantations to gather together, usually after midnight when the masters were sleeping and the day's work was done. Was that a place where history was passed along to the next generation? And do you think that there might be an echo of that atmosphere and the joyous celebration of spirituality that is the foundation of African-American churches today? You know, that's a very interesting thought. You know, I think you're certainly right. Funerals were one of the few times where enslaved people had any control over their lives. And it was also a time when people who had been sold away, family members were no longer present. It was a time when they could, could come together and embrace one another, but also to share stories again. And so I think of the African-American church now, and it really is a community. I remember my church in Massachusetts. I would walk into the sanctuary and just felt feel like I was with family, feel like I was home, you know, and just that, that community from the young to the elderly. Dr. Betty Kearse is our guest. Her book is The Other Madisons, The Lost History of a President's Black Family. The website is bettykearse.com, spelled B-E-T-T-Y-E-K-E-A-R-S-E.com. I'm fascinated by this transference of oral human history across the generations. How did the Griots ensure that the important details weren't lost in translation? Well, the ancient Griots, going back thousands of years, probably before the birth of Christ, had phenomenal memories. 
And, you know, they were trained and they recited them and recited them over and over. Now, I imagine that there was some editing done, but for the most part, the stories remain true and as well as the history did. Griots are the, the female oral historians and griots are the male oral historians. But they were kind of a separate class of people. Not I mean, class really isn't the right word, but they were kind of a distinctive community within the community. They had a very specific role. And so they didn't have a lot of distractions, you know, like we do and like other members of the villages in Africa did. When Africans were stolen and brought to this country, they brought the tradition with them, but they weren't able to set aside this community with a com- in a community. So the training that the African griots had could not be maintained here. I think a lot of information was lost. And that certainly happened in my family. So that is one of the reasons that my great-grandfather, and I don't know about my great-great-grandfather, but I know that my great-grandfather began collecting um, documents, um, any kind of memorabilia, sort of to help hang on to who we were, to our personal history. And then my grandfather added more and more, and he put it in a Bible, and that's a story in itself. But then my mother later put him in a box. That kind of strays away from the tradition because in West Africa, it was all oral. And then I come along in, in, in 1990. Actually, I should say my mother came along in 1990 and said, it's time for you to write the book. So this was the first time it, it actually became recorded. Well, there were really two ideas behind that. My mother was concerned that as our family got kind of comfortable and farther and farther away from the hardships of enslavement and the hardships of the Jim Crow era, that people would kind of forget the stories and forget where they came from and forget their ancestors. So if you write it down, that would help preserve the history and the stories and the people behind them. The other reason was that she felt that this was the time for our family's story to become recognized as part of America's story. And so it should be written down. And she picked me because I love to write. What do we know about the connection between James Madison and Corinne? Much of it is oral history that has been passed down for for eight generations now. So we do rely heavily on oral history, but I am still looking for some kind of documentation, but it's extremely difficult. For one thing, 
names of enslaved people just weren't recorded because their names didn't matter. Another reason is that there were fires in, in courthouses, which may or may not have been accidental. And then there were deliberate small fires that were requested by James and Dolly Madison on, uh, upon their deaths. Both of them asked that their personal papers be burned uh, once they had died. You know, families are torn apart, names are changed. It's been very difficult to, f- to find James Madison's son. We have his grandson, but we're still looking for his son. And we may have found somebody, but we're still working on that. We may have found a free man whose name was Shadrach Madison, who might have actually been Madison's son with a different name. Betty Kearse is our guest. The book is The Other Madisons, The Lost History of a President's Black Family. You're a geneticist. Is there an answer there somewhere? Yes, but there are roadblocks there also. So in trying to make a DNA connection, looking at the Shadrach Madison's family and trying to connect my family to him, we've (laughs) discovered that the name was taken from the mother and not from the father, and the father was somebody else, so we couldn't use their Y chromosome, but still working on it. For those of us who have forgotten our middle school science, remind us of why we study the paternal genetic line and not the mom's side of the story. The mothers don't have, carry a, a chromosome. They have two X's. You know, like the other chromosomes, excluding the Y chromosomes, they exchange genetic material through each generation. And so that's why the autosomes, as the other chromosomes, not the sex chromosomes are called, are very helpful, but they're not as um, reliable and consistent as the Y chromosome because it does not exchange genetic material with the X chromosome in males. So what are we buying when we sign up for that DNA test? at Ancestry.com. You're doing autosomes, and they are helpful. But with every generation, this let's kind of call it a, a dilution. So, for example, I did a chromosome study with Ancestry DNA with a descendant of one of Madison's sisters, and we did not match. But we are really distant cousins. I was told that the likelihood that we would have matched is only 16%. What would it take to get concrete proof? We read in mystery thrillers about a lock of someone's hair being used to prove a person's identity. If you could get a strand of James Madison's hair, would that be helpful? I don't think that's very reliable. So, yes, that that exact um, recommendation has been made. But I was working with a DNA geneticist who specializes in African ancestry all over. He's a DNA geneticist. And he said, you don't want to use any kind of cadaver DNA is what he he called it. 
is, is just um, not as reliable. Dr. Betty Kears is our guest. Her fascinating book is The Other Madisons, The Lost History of a President's Black Family. The story she tells has many dimensions we might find in a thriller. But I also found the kind of wisdom that Dr. Viktor Frankl wrote about in Man's Search for Meaning. Betty Kears, you write about the enduring hope that seems to have been genetically stamped into the DNA of a people thrust into an untenable situation. How did they maintain such a positive attitude in such a horrible world? They were able to do it by recognizing their own humanity. They knew that they were not property, not really. Someone thought that they were property, but they, you really can't own a human being and their spirit. The spirit is always free, no matter where the body may be. A life lesson for us all. Betty Kearse, have you always had a passion for writing? Well, I always did write. But I didn't try to publish anything. I was just writing for myself. <laughs> I always wrote. I want to tell you about when I was in elementary school. I was an entrepreneur. I, or, or I, I, was, I had a business. So I liked to write even in elementary school. And other students didn't like to write. And so they would pay me 50 cents to write their stories for them. And then the teacher caught on. But all she did was laugh. You were a ghostwriter, one of the early ghostwriters. <laughs> I was a ghostwriter, yes. And I got to keep the 50 cents. <laughs> did she recognize your style? What gave you away? Yeah, she recognized my style. That was it, absolutely. Betty Kears, what was the process that African communities used to select their oracles? Well, it was usually with, you know, within a family and, you know, father to son or father to daughter and so on. Yeah. It sounds like an equal opportunity gig. What other traits were important in an oracle? For example, some of the stories I tell seem to get embellished over time. I imagine attention to detail and a super accurate memory were key. I know. No, that's no memory is a key and memory is important, but I think more important is a, a dedication to maintaining this history. There was not a written history in Africa 2000 years ago. That's all that they had to maintain the legacies of their ancestors. Here in the U.S., very often, that's also the only legacy we have. Every family has their share of both the good and the not so good. We whisper tales of our ne'er-do-wells at family reunions, but we also celebrate our rock stars. It sounds like your family has always been proud of your connection to a president. That is true. When my ancestors, who were by then living in Texas, they went from Virginia to Tennessee to Texas. When they were freed, they used the name Madison. They said, always remember you are Madison. You come from a president. Because my great-great-grandfather, to keep the great straight, my great-great-grandfather wanted his children to be inspired by the legacy of descending from a president. And it was my grandfather who 
added two important words to the credo. So now the credo is always remember, you're a Madison. You come from African slaves and a president. So my grandfather was quite proud of descending from a president, but he was also very, very proud of descending from enslaved people because they had overcome so much. They had endured so much. And my mother had that same pride. She was very proud of descending from a president. You know, she was maybe more proud of descending from a president where I am more proud of descending from these remarkable enslaved people. Are any of your relatives in politics? No. <laughs> You're the first person to ask me that. No, I, I, I do have relatives who are attorneys, but that's the closest that anybody in my family gets. We have some community activists, but that isn't really politics. What a good question. I have to find out why. Next reunion. <laughs> well, there are many ways to influence the future. Politics is definitely one way. But storytellers seem to be the voices that endure. What's been the reaction to the Madisons? Oh, I've had wonderful uh, reaction, both from readers and from um, official reviews. So I'm, I'm very pleased that reviewers and just general readers just really appreciate the message that, uh, that I'm speaking of about the enslaved people and, and, and their strengths. And people are also interesting, interested in knowing a part of history that they weren't aware of before. And then my family's very happy with me. I imagine that some might wonder if there was a way to prove the connection in a more conclusive scientific manner. You know, there yeah. are some who just want um, harder proof. They don't want just the oral history. But I'm working on that. <laughs> you made the most of the technology of the day. The oracles were the Internet of their time and arguably had a very reliable connection across the generations. How has the white community received the Madisons? Um, favorably quite favorably. <clears throat> and I, I, you know, many white Americans just didn't have a sense of what enslaved people endured. And, and you know, they, they are appreciative of, of this awareness now. And I worked very hard in the book to make it um, a very passionate, intimate story so that enslaved people were not held at a distance. And so, that, so that any reader can empathize. Race continues to be a flashpoint in both American institutions and American culture. In my experience as a world traveler, I've learned that understanding and acceptance of differences can start to happen when we walk the path by another person's side. 
Was one of the goals of the book to promote understanding and perhaps bring us a little closer together than we may have been before? That Yes, that, that certainly is an objective. But it was very important for me for this to be an uplifting book. It, it ha- tells of horrible things, but it ends, I, or I shouldn't give it with an ending. Well, I'm not going to actually give an ending, <laughs> but I'm hoping that the reader is left with a sense of, of the strength and the hopefulness of, of the enslaved people. The Other Madisons, The Lost History of a President's Black Family is the book, and our special guest is its author, Dr. Betty Kearse. How has your life changed since you became an author? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I have become a different person. Um, you know, I, I really grew up pretty protected and pampered. And I never had a moment of hardship. If I went hungry, it's because I decided I wanted to lose a couple of pounds. I was never deprived. And when I started doing my research and really understanding what my enslaved ancestors had gone through. Now, now Mandy was my family's first African ancestor in America. So she was stolen away from her family. She lost everything she knew and everyone she loved. She somehow survived the horrific Middle Passage. She was put on an auction block, sold, and turned into a slave and and had to understand herself as an enslaved person with all of its vulnerabilities and deprivations. So I, you know, I began to understand that this is a vital part of who I am. So I grew a lot. And then after the book was published, I had to become a different person again because I'm, I'm, you know, pretty quiet, pretty reserved. But if I'm going to get this book out and get people to know about it and hear about my message, I've got to do public speaking. I've got to be on podcasts. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, I have to do events. And I really do enjoy it. But it requires really a, a it's, it's a challenge for me. I've, ha- I've had the change. Yeah, it's outside of your comfort zone. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, you know, I'm growing through it. Now that you've been on the speaking circuit and have been interviewed so often, do you have a favorite question that you wish people like me would ask? The question that I like to talk about the most is what experiences in the research and writing affected me the most? So one of those experiences was walking in my ancestors' footsteps. So my great, 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 grandmother, Corrine, 
was a cook. This is a woman who had a relationship with James Madison. She was a cook at Montpelier. And the kitchen was located about 70 feet away from the mansion. And there is a groove in the ground, so like a furrow that runs from this kitchen to the rear entry of the mansion. And the archeologist explained to me that that had been worn into the ground by generations of enslaved cooks walking to and from the mansion to serve the Madisons and their many guests. So I was able to step into that groove and walk the length of it. So I was literally able to walk in my ancestors' footsteps. What did that feel like? It felt whole. Uh, it, it felt that I really knew this woman who was several generations um, before me, but who also, like Mandy did, helped shape who I am. I felt that I belonged there. I felt connected. I think maybe the strongest word is connected. Did you feel their presence? Yes. And another place that I felt the presence of an ancestor was in the cemetery. I went there and um, I was reluctant to go at, at first because I thought it was going to be, oh, just dry dirt and weeds. And, and poison ivy. I'd been told there was poison ivy there. <laughs> but I ended up going at a time of year. I went in April and I didn't encounter any poison ivy. But enslaved people, I think I mentioned this before, that enslaved or African people prefer to bury their loved ones near trees if they, if they can. And so the slave cemetery at Montpelier is basically a kingdom of trees. And when I went there, there were, I don't know, hundreds of trees, I don't know how many, but one of them called to me and I walked over to that tree. And at the base of that tree was a rock. And the enslaved people used just sort of crude pieces of granite as headstones. So I walked over to this rock, which was a headstone, and I just knew that that was where Mandy is buried. I'm getting chills, Betty. I read every guest's book before we visit and try to maintain a good host's emotional distance and neutrality. But I have to say that reading the Madisons was an enriching experience. Thank you for being our oracle and writing this book. Oh, I am, am, am so glad that I did. I'm so glad that you liked it. And, you know, I, I just hope everybody hears its message. If you could project yourself into the future and have a conversation with a reader 100 years from now, what do you hope that book's impact will be? I hope that young African-Americans will believe in themselves because they inherited all these powerful qualities 
from their enslaved ancestors. And they, I want them to be able to reach deep in the, inside themselves and grab onto and nurture those qualities so that they can fulfill their dreams, their hopes, and that they, like their enslaved ancestors, make contributions to our country and to the world as well. To leave the world in a better place than they found it. Yes. Dr. Betty Kearse certainly has done that. She's the author of The Other Madisons, The Lost History of a President's Black Family, an important American story that deserves to be part of every school's history curriculum. You can learn more about it at her website, B-E-T-T-Y-E-K-E-A-R-S-E.com. She's also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Betty Kearse. And she's Betty Kearse on both Twitter and has a little outpost on Instagram. Betty, thank you for joining me and for a fascinating visit. Well, thank you, Terry. This was a fabulous conversation. And you ask really good questions. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a joy. Likewise. My pleasure indeed. Authors on the Air can be found on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud. We invite you to explore the many other podcasts that focus on the craft aggregated at the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Our theme music was written by Pavlo Butorin. I'm Terry Shepard, and I'll see you in the next chapter.